we are beginning a new series this week. For the next three weeks, we will be journeying through some of the stories from the book of Judges. I have to admit from the outset, I have a bit of a bias against this book. Before Michael left on his trip, he and I were laughing and he was lamenting a bit that he would not get to add his two cents and that it would be me who was helping us journey through these texts uh, because he thinks much more highly of the book of Judges than I do. And when someone asked this week, actually multiple people asked this week, what are you going to preach about this week? And it's like, I'm going to preach about Judges. I'm grateful to be on a staff and have a, a preaching partner with whom we plan things very far in advance. And we think that this is where God is leading us. And it's a, it's a good time right before Advent to consider the time without any kings. That's what the book of Judges, it's all about. But, but if you think about it, there's a lot of really difficult things to deal with in the book of Judges. Have you read it before? Have you read that in the book of Judges, there is mass murder and sexual violence and apostasy and civil war and many more unspeakable acts of malice and hate? It's odd when you think of the good news being the Bible, that the book of Judges is in there at all. Yet even still, the compilers of the sacred canon saw fit to include this book in our scriptures. And I, like you, am part of a wonderful Judeo-Christian faith. And as such, I don't get to decide what books we include or discard from the canon. Neither do you. None of us can say, well, I don't like this book, so we're just not going to include it. We're not going to read it. We're not going to talk about it. So we have it before us. And as a community, we have the safe space and the, the luxury of friends and family with whom we can struggle with text. We can read it. We can think about what does this mean for our lives in light of the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, the book of Judges forces us to have an engaged faith. You cannot have a faith that just flows idly by and read the book of Judges with any real sincerity because there's so much in there that doesn't compute with what we hear from Jesus. There's, if you just read the book of Judges and think, all oh, this fits nicely and neatly into my faith journey, um, that might be a, even more of a problem. And so since we can't cover all of this book in three sermons, we're offering the, the counterpart to it as well. I will be diving deeper in this room tonight at five o'clock. For the next three weeks, we'll be talking in more detail about the book of Judges. And I hope you'll join us because it is a book that we ought to consider because it does tell the story of God's people. And so that's what we're going to do. For the next three weeks, we're going to be in the time of the judges. And this morning, we're considering the person, the judge, Samson. And if you'll allow me, I'd like to preach from the subject at the end of it all. At the end of it all. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So how much do you know about Samson? How much do you know about his story? You probably know he's a really strong guy. That he had locks of hair that gave him his strength. You might know about his, that he fell in love with a woman named Delilah. You might even know that he killed a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey. 
But let's back up just a little bit and consider more of Samson's story. Samson was supposed to be a Nazarite, which means from the womb he was dedicated to be a servant of God. He was supposed to follow the rules of the Nazarites in order to be a witness on behalf of God's people. One night an angel came to his mother who had been barren and told her that she was going to have a son. Does that sound familiar to any other stories in the Bible? Maybe Abraham and Sarah. After the angel told them this, they offered, she and her husband offered a burnt offering to God. And then the angel flew up in the flames back into heaven. And it's really an epic story. It's an epic beginning to an epic person. But we don't get anything about his childhood or his life between the time that his birth was pronounced and the time that he was ready to get married. We're not offered any details except that he went down to Timnah and saw a young Philistine woman. He told his dad he wanted to marry this woman. And his father's response is one that in my mind is a bit unexpected. His father tells Samson, isn't there an acceptable woman from among your relatives you can marry? Apparently this question is less strange in the ancient Near East. I cannot imagine telling my father, Dad, I met this girl named Brianna. She's wonderful. I'm going to marry her. And him saying, are you sure there's not like a cousin of yours that you might want to marry instead? But Samson was drawn to this Philistine woman. And immediately after telling his father about it, we get this story about him killing a lion on the way to the Philistine town. And then the story jumps ahead where he's going back to the Philistine town and he passes the place where the dead animal was left. And he found inside the carcass of a lion a beehive had formed. And so he dipped his hand in there and he got some honey out. And he was eating the honey on the way to the town when he came into contact with the Philistine people. And he told them a riddle. And he said, if you can answer the riddle of where I got this honey from, then I will give you 30 garments of linen and 30 sets of clothes. But if, I, if you cannot answer it, then you have to give me the same. The Philistine people, they agreed to this. They said, okay, sounds like a great challenge, but they couldn't come up with the answer. And so they blackmailed his new wife and told her that they would do unspeakable things if they, she did not give them the answer. And so she tried desperately to get Samson to give her the answer. And after many tries, he, he did. He confided in her that it had come from the belly of the lion. And so the Philistine people found this out from Samson's wife. And when they told Samson, he was full of rage. He said to the people, and this is a quote, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. And guys, I don't care how long you've been married or how close you and your wife may be. If you want a little bit of pastoral counseling advice, don't call your wife a heifer and then have somebody write it down for all eternity. It's not a good strategy. The text says then that the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything and gave their clothes to those who he explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. So I think it's safe to say Samson, he's a little competitive. He's got a bit of a temper and he doesn't take too kindly to losing or to cheaters. In the next chapter, we find out Samson was actually pretty upset about his wife being given to a companion of his. 
which I would hope that he would have been. But with his anger, he decided he would get back to the Philistines by capturing 300 foxes and lighting their tails on fire. And the text says that they then let the foxes go into the grain fields, into the olive groves, and into the, the grapevines and set them all ablaze. I mean, that, that's one way to let people know you're mad, right? Just imagine what that would look like, capturing 300 foxes and lighting their tails on fire. The Philistines retaliated by burning his wife and his father-in-law. Samson retaliated by killing several of their men and then fleeing to Judah. And the Philistines threatened the people of Judah to turn over Samson. And as they were going to turn him over, that's when he grabbed the jawbone of the donkey. And the text says that he killed 1,000 men. And from then on, he became the judge of Israel for 20 years. Now, I could go on more and more about Samson's escapades, right? He, He went to Gaza to find prostitutes. He tore up two city gates and ripped their posts from the wall. He had his experiences with Delilah where she tricks him to get his strength and the Philistines gouge out his eyes. But the combination of all these stories, they paint for us a pretty clear picture of who Samson is. He's an overly confident, egotistical meathead with a thirst for worldly vices and a propensity towards violence. I know our children's stories describe this wonderful picture of Samson, this strong man who fights for God's people. But if you read the story of Samson, you wonder if he even knows who God is. I mean, he makes no mention of God's law, that for which he's supposed to be the champion. He's supposed to be a Nazarite, which means he's not supposed to ever cut his hair. He's not supposed to eat from anything dead, like a lion filled with honey. He's not supposed to solicit prostitutes or any type of other pagan activities. It's like the opposite of the Blues Brothers. They were on a mission from God. He was on a mission to not have anything to do with God. He put his faith in himself. And his actions indicate that he has never heard or put any care towards what the Torah or the Shema or any of other God's sacred words meant. He was an Israelite in name only. So perhaps Samson is not the pinnacle of manhood that we should all put on a spiritual pedestal. But, when you hear that in a sermon, but, it means something's coming. I'm not sure, even as I lay into Samson's character, that we should jump to be so hypercritical. Because there's a moment here in the text There's a moment here in the story of Samson where where Samson really could be any one of us. He reminds me of some of us in this very room. He reminds me of the couple that has tried to work things out, but they're at the moment right before they decide if they're going to get a divorce. He reminds me of the addict who's been battling substance demons for so long and is right at the moment before they decide if they're going to go to rehab. He reminds me of the kid who's been bullied constantly and is at his wit's end. He reminds me of the woman who longs to have biological children, but it has not yet happened. You might be thinking, Woods, how how do these people and Samson have anything in common? Samson was a womanizer and a, a killer, and he ate honey from the belly of a lion. Which is just still strange to me. 
But did you catch where Samson was in today's story that we just read in the text that we read for this morning? What was going on at that moment? He was captured. He had been blinded. He had been tortured. He had nowhere to turn. And then he offered what seemed to be the most humble words of his entire life. He said, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please God, strengthen me just once more. A man who had been stripped of everything. He'd been laid bare and realized when it came time to measure his life, the only place he could turn for strength was God. This is exactly where the couple is who are on the brink or the addict desperate to find a way out. It's the headspace of the kid who's being bullied. It's where many hopeful mothers-to-be end up on their way to their journey through parenthood. And this story about Samson, particularly this moment, it tells us very little about Samson other than the fact that he's a human. Despite his strength, despite his unnatural abilities, Despite the stories of his grandness, at the core, he's just like you and me. He's a human. He's limited. But even more importantly, this moment in this story tells us something about God and the nature of faith. I know technically Samson is supposed to be doing these things for God's people, right? It doesn't matter what his actions were because he's supposed to be doing these things on behalf of the Israelites. But do you think God really loved Samson searching for prostitutes and blindly killing without thought and just reckless abandon? Is that the type of behavior you believe God glorifies and encourages? Because if so, I'm sorry, you and I might worship different gods. The picture of God as author of radical violence is not one that is in line with the stories and the image and the witness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As Christians, we understand that Jesus cares about all people. Samson only cared about himself. Christ calls us to be humble and selfless, and Samson could not be more selfish. Christ leaned on the strength of his father, and Samson only was concerned with his own strength. If we hold on to this warmongering God who longs to bring violence against the ones who look different than us, then we will never know the God of peace who tells us to love our enemies. So as Christians, reading through this story, reading this story through the lens of Jesus Christ, I hear in this story nothing that has to do with God's vengeance or God's violence. What I actually hear as I think about the nature of God through the person of Jesus Christ is that it shows the depths of God's mercy. It shows us that there's truly no one that God will abandon. Samson has barely acknowledged God, has rarely even mentioned that God is having any existence whatsoever. He broke God's laws. He acted selfishly. He cared only about himself. But when he was at his weakest, when he was at his most humble place, when there was nowhere else to turn, Samson said, please, God, give me the strength. 
This is a reminder to all of us today that it doesn't matter what you think of yourself. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done, what other people have said or done to you. There is no one, no one, that God will abandon. There is no one, not even you, not even me, in our worst moments, will God abandon. And the thing this story helps us to realize about the nature of faith is that you never really know you have it until it's all that you have. We often equate faith with belief. Like, how strong is your faith? Oh, I've read this many books of the Bible this year. I've been to church this many times. I I know so much about theology and I can articulate all my thoughts about my faith. But the Bible says that faith is assurance of what is hoped for, evidence of things unseen. You cannot see what is unseen. You cannot know what to hope for until all you have is hope for it. Faith is most evident when it is the only thing we have left. The people with the most faith aren't the ones who seem to be most blessed by society's standards. Great faith doesn't mean you have all the things. Jesus said, blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who suffer, because they will be comforted. Faith is an experience of emptiness, not the result of favored circumstance. Samson might not be the best human example for us to follow. In fact, I pray my son does not carry on any of Samson's qualities, except that he shows us what true faith really is. And that it's possible even with people who you would think it ought not be. And so as we wrap up this sermon this morning, I want to say to you, there is a hopeful word even in this tragic story of death and destruction. And it is that God will never abandon you. Even if you have nothing to offer and nothing to give and nothing to hold on to but your faith. God will still be there. In fact, it might be when God is most evident. But I I have to be honest, and this story helps us realize that things don't always turn out the way we hope, even if we do have faith. Because I I don't know why the story ends with God hearing Samson's prayer and then giving him the strength to kill 3,000 people, most of whom are just there watching. They haven't done anything wrong. That doesn't sound very godly to me. There's still a problematic ending to this story, despite its deep truths about God and faith, which are worth thinking more about. And so I hope you'll join us tonight as we do that. But there's also still a problematic reality in life, isn't there? Even though I know God won't abandon anyone and that God won't abandon me and that God hears us in our weakness, that doesn't mean the couple doesn't get divorced. It doesn't mean that the addict won't relapse. It doesn't mean bullies go away forever or that a child is without a doubt part of the future. All those things are possible. I believe with God, all things are possible. But God is not a genie and faith is not a lamp that we can just rub and hope that God will give us the wishes that will then make our will be done on earth. But I do know and I believe this with my whole heart that no matter what we go through, 
no matter what the circumstances are, God will be there with us. God became a human in Jesus Christ, and that changed everything. When God became incarnate, God felt everything that we feel. When you feel loss, God has felt that. When you feel hurt and pain, God has felt that. When you feel joy and happiness, God has felt that because Jesus is God. And Jesus went through all those experiences and more. And because that there is nothing we can go through that God hasn't also already gone through, we know that no matter where we are, God will be there with us, feeling our pain, being present in our lives, and not some faraway distant deity, but this Holy Spirit intimacy that is present even when all else is lost. God will be there. That's what it means for God not to abandon us. Not only will God not turn away from us, God won't remove God's self to some faraway place, but be right there. Even in the hardest of times, God will not abandon us. And so even in this troubled book of Judges full of things for which I, I would not read to my children at their, this age, but it's also a part of the Bible, I'm glad to know that we can even still see that even the stuff that looks scary or uncertain, God is there. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. We will not be passing the, the plate for offering this morning as you might have already experienced if you've been here before. We ask that you can drop your offering and your commitment cards, if you have not yet turned those in, into the offering plate on your way out the door. But I do want to give a prayer over those offerings this morning. God, we thank you for the ways in which you have given to us. Let us now give out of that abundance. May these gifts be multiplied and then used to make your kingdom known on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said...